0: Quack. Oh wait, wait, wait. This is part of an experiment. Quack 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 quack. Quack 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 quack. quack, quack, quack. Quack 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 quack. Quack, quack, quack quack quack. <laughs> quack, 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 quack. Quack, 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 Come on, let's hear it, man. I not... That's better. you lay it down for all of us, Dad. A little experiment here in total direct communication. Uh, What you might say is symbolic, uh, total direct in communication. I have a little note here from Covington, Kentucky. Nearby Fort Mitchell police investigated a car abandoned off Interstate 75, thinking it was leaking high-test gasoline, but instead it was leaking moonshine. They opened the trunk and they found that it had a specially prepared gas tank They didn't say what the car was running on before that, but it was leaking that that white lightning all over the street there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all part of the scene. It's, you know, man striving to constantly reassure himself one way or the other, you know. Oh, yeah, you wake up in the morning, you got a good clear head... You know nothing's worse than having a good clear head at night. I mean that that uh, you know you're walking. Oh yeah, you can see things so clearly, and that can be scary. You know, and man is always attempting to make a statement, trying to trying to grab a hold of those brass rings of reality. How you doing out there, Norman Mailer? Got a hold of them brass rings of reality, okay, huh? Itchin' chee 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 a lot of chee-tee-tee-tee-tee. i am thinking of this car leaking booze on Route 75 in Covington. You know anything about Covington, Kentucky, friends? I do. I really do. I one time lived on Madison Avenue. You believe it? They got a Madison Avenue in Covington, Kentucky? Lived right on Madison Avenue over a jewelry store in Covington, Kentucky. In fact, to be honest with you, I didn't exactly live over the jewelry store. I lived over the hot water heater, which was in the back of the jewelry store. I had a, an apartment, believe me, friends, I had an apartment that was hotter than the hinges of hell. Summer and winter, it didn't make any difference what time of the year it was. That apartment was like walking into a sweat box. And I would walk around, you could feel the floor, you could see the heat rising off the floor. And I didn't know that, of course, when I rented it, you know. Because I rented it on a cold winter's day. And I came in out of the cold, you know. And the guy says, you know, one thing, it's a very snug apartment. You, he didn't really talk like that. He was from Covington. He says, well, friend, he says, what you'll find here is a very snug apartment. You won't have no problem here with with the cold air coming in under the door because is a very snug apartment. You see, we've we got good insulation here. And I opened the door, and I felt that warm air, and I thought, how great. You know, I'd been living at the Y before that. And the cold wind blowing up from the pool to the Y, you know, had made me have a great hunger for a warm apartment. And I rented this apartment. I moved in. And it was December, you know. And it was cold out. It was like, you know, 12 degrees above zero. And for the first three days, I just figured if I turned the knob on the wall down... I would turn the heat down. You know, it said heat, hot. You know, the knob says medium hot, warm. Oh, of course, that was a joke. The heat was coming from somewhere else. I was living right over the central core of hell itself. And so every night I would come into my apartment. Then it began to be April, May, and June. And the temperature outside went up. And the temperature inside went up. Until finally it hit August. Just like now, friends, August. We're right on the verge of August. What is the date now? Thirty first, first August one. Huh? Oh boy, I always remember August as my month in hell. Living in that apartment. Have you ever, do you, do you ever think, corny back on some of the places you've lived in? Just think of some of the places you've lived in over the past. You never, you know, when you when you see some guy that's really made it, you know, like like. Uh, Marlon Brando. You, know, you think of Marlon Brando. He's got this great big house probably in Beverly Hills with a swimming pool and all that. Did I ever tell you one time I lived in one of the crummiest, rottenest, stinkingest little apartments in all of New York City that Marlon Brando had had? Yeah, he, you know, I I, I moved into this apartment. It was. I was there a couple of months, and the funny phone calls would happen once in a while, people knocking on the door, and, you know... And uh, I'd open the door and they'd look, a funny face, and you know, the, uh, the jaw drop, and they'd say, Is he here? I'd say, No. And they'd leave. And uh, it was, you know, after a while, I figure either they're looking for a bookie joint or some guy that's selling something on the side, you know. And one day I asked one of them, I says, Is who here? I says, Well, you know who? He says, Well, I guess he isn't, huh? And I says, Well, who? Come on, Mac. Well, this guy was only three feet tall, so I could, you know, push him around. I said, Tell me who it is. He says, Marlin. I says, Marlon? Yeah, he says, Marlon Brando. He was from the Bronx. I said, Marlon Brando? And he said, Marlon Brando. I said, Did he live here? He said, yeah. So I shoved him down the air shaft. That was my one claim to fame. I lived in the apartment that Marlon Brando lived in. Well, I want to tell you, <laughs> uh, you never think of, uh, you know, somehow you have an idea that Loretta Young always lived uh, in this never-never land of... Uh, filmy negligees and all that stuff Uh, have you ever had the feeling that uh, that uh, Audrey Hepburn has never seen a cockroach doesn't know what they look like I mean you get that feeling about Jackie Kennedy you know but I know a guy well that's another story don't want to get into that you know it gets political next thing you know you're shot down in flames I don't want to get into that but uh, did I tell you about the guy I knew who went to school with Jackie Kennedy yeah in Paris. He says, he's seen some cockroaches. <laughs> you know, that's something else. You, know, you don't want to get into that, but when you think of apartments you've had, you know, little you imagine, can you imagine somebody coming to you and say, all right, Corny, all right, Shepard, I'm going to take a look at your past. You know how this, uh, Old Ralph Edwards show was... You know, the Ralph Edwards show never quite touched it, you know. They always brought that good stuff out of the past, you know. The, 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 Your eighth grade teacher who gave you an A for your theme, that kind of stuff. Wouldn't you like to see a real nitty-gritty past? And it opens up, you know, there's a big uh, fanfare. It's time now to take a look at your past. Corny... And you're standing there waiting to see... And the MC says, "And now, here he is. One of the first people that we have been able to get out of your past who is willing to show up. And here he is. Come on in, Greasy Thumb. And the door opens, and in comes this guy with stainless steel teeth. That sneaky-looking guy with yellow eyes. The guy that sold you the second-hand Oldsmobile with the plastic differential. The used car dealer who really gave you a you-know-whating right from the beginning." He walks in, he says, oh, what a sucker you are, man. And out he goes. And you're, oh, you're already budging off all the stuff. And then they say, now, here it is, the next man from your past. Will you please step this way, Mr. Bullard? And out comes the first boss that fired you. J.G. Bullard, who was famous for, you know, in the whole organization, for the only guy that pulls his own teeth with his own fingers. J.G. Bullard looks at you and says, Oh, man, you are a no-talent lout. Yes, Mr. Bullard. Get out of my sight. And then they take him away. And then they start showing scenes out of your past of apartments you lived in during particularly rotten periods in your life. Really rotten periods. And sometimes late at night, friends, really late at night, like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, I wake up. I look up at the ceiling. A little yellow blues there, if you will, Cornelius. A little yellow blues. Real sneaky in the background. Soft and subtle. Yeah. I wake up about three in the morning, see? I look up at that old ceiling. Especially after I've had time. kind of a shaky day, as we all have. From time to time, no matter who the living man is, he has his shaky days. I look up at the ceiling, and all ceilings look alike at 3 o'clock in the morning. There's a little trickle of light coming in through the Venetian blinds, carrying with it just the edge of flickering red neon sign. The greasy, spooned Mexican restaurant down the street that specializes in greasy spoon Mexican food and pot. It flickers around the edges, and I look up there, for one brief instant, I am under the illusion that I am back in any one of 75 miserable holes that I have festered my life away in. Yeah. Like that miserable hole in Covington, Kentucky. It came furnished, friends. Have you ever wondered what kind of an insane, idiotic, sadistic furniture company makes the furniture that furnished rooms are furnished with? That's not real furniture that people actually go out and buy. produced in some sub-corner of hell. Furnished room. Yeah, that rug of the purest burlap. That furniture of the purest plastic. The purest cheap vernier. And that wallpaper. That wallpaper with the imitation strawberry vines crawling up the side of it. And cows that look like they're wearing coupes. Yeah. And the heat. And that evil landlord. That evil, evil landlord. Every time I would fall down the stairs because he never changed the light bulbs on the second landing would just peer out of his cage daring you to say anything at the heat 150 degrees in the shade 270 degrees in the sun and that one window that opened on a Kentucky air shaft Friends, you think air shafts are something, huh? In the Bronx? You ever looked out on a Kentucky air shaft? Yeah. And down the air shaft and to the left, there was another guy who lived in another cell with this lady who cried a lot. And maybe every third or fourth night, they'd have this giant knockdown, dragout, head busting fight hit each other on the head with chairs, and she would cry. And he'd throw jugs out, out of his little bathroom window that opened on the air shaft, and I'd hear him crash down on the concrete below to join 58 million other jugs. That nitty-gritty world. And out in front of my apartment, I'd hear once in a while the wail of a squad car going past, because down the street... At the Vineland Cafe, there has been another little knife set to in front of the jukebox out of which wailed Roy Acuff and the Delmore twins nightly. Yeah. Once in a while, I'd get up at four in the morning unable to sleep in the 210-degree temperature and go down on the street over to the White Castle join the gang from Hazard, Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You like that, huh? Did you really like that? Didn't know I had such a checkered past, did you? Which reminds me, this is WOR. funny. A few years I'll be looking back and nobody will believe I was here. WOR in New York, would you please hit that big beer button? That's it, man. Yeah, yeah, there's a great country all around us. Now, <laughs> talking about Covington, now's the time to get out and see it. Yeah, make this Discover America time. And the best way to discover America, friends, is a great, big, fat, magnificent snook of Miller High Life beer. In the crystal clear bottle, the champagne golden cam, or straight from the tap, Miller makes it right, friend. Party, robust, deep down good. Man, when you have laid in a six-pack of Miller High Life, you are seeing the real colors, Miller. Hey, yeah, the champagne of all there. Miller makes it right all the way. Miller makes it right, friend. Oh, Miller High Life goes down so easy. Champagne of follow me, the roof. Chase her out. Out. Get rid of them. Yeah, they're always looking for something. One thing about women. Yeah, I know that type. Uh listen, uh, friends. Hey, uh... you <laughs> don't you think this would make a great TV show, seriously? Yeah, man. Would you be hungry this Sunday, friends, between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m.? I'm not talking about the big hunger. I'm talking about little hunger. 3 and 11 a.m. If so, you can eat all you want. You can scoff, friends, all you want at the Great Shanghai Sunday brunch for just $2.50, and it is a fantastic... You know that we got guys... One guy wrote me a letter, and he said, Shepherd, I'm so glad you turned me on to that Sunday brunch at the Great Shanghai. He says, I stopped eating about noon Wednesday. And he says, and by Sunday, I am ready. And when I walk in there, he says, man, he says, and it's even better since I'm only three feet nine. You see, uh, kids under four feet tall are allowed in half price. What a pig. Four delectable appetizers are served. Fried wonton, egg rolls, sweet and sour spare ribs, two fantastic soups, the whole bit, you know. Six main courses, and they have a new menu every week. That's the Great Shanghai... From 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., all you can eat for two dollars and a half, and that's at Broadway and 103rd Street. There's an I.R.T. that comes right up there, next to the dishwashing machine. It's right in the back there. You can get out, and it's good food, right? Have you ever been there, Corny? I'm not kidding. It's a good restaurant. If if, if Chinese food can be called soul food, they serve it there. I mean, it's real basic. You know, you get the fried rice there, and you can it's fried. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, speaking of of uh, bad scenes we've all lived through, uh, I, I was reading that little that little thing about the uh, the, the whiskey in the car in Covington, Kentucky. Now, now, I don't often I don't often uh, try to burden people who listen to the show with uh personal reminiscences of this type. Uh, the nitty-gritty world that we all live in professionally or wh- whatever whatever, whatever it is that we go moving through. It's very hard, you know, to, to define life. And I don't think life is ever shown on screens. I've never seen a movie that comes anywhere near what my life is like. Have you ever seen anything in a movie that's anything like your life, Connie? I, I, I sometimes wonder how people can take movies and plays as seriously as they do. I just read uh, a, a collection of essays by a movie critic. And it was like reading a collection of essays about the monetary system of Oz. Makes no sense whatsoever, you know. How can people take really seriously this, this strange, cut-glass, bubbly world of uh, the Sidney Lumet's? Uh, the, the, what, what the new play is about, uh, what the new book is about, the new novel... When life is going, you're in it, you know, the the real thing. And you never see it reflected. I've never seen anything, ever. Uh, I've seen 500 novels about the South I've read. I've read uh, probably... uh, I've probably seen 50 movies about the South. And I have never seen anything like the real South that I lived in. Covington. this is the South. Nothing at all like it. Uh, The South, when you mention the South, you immediately see... A scene involving Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier. That's the South. You know, you see this cliche. Uh, New York. What do you see in New York when, when the, you said the word New York? Well, you see uh, a scene involving uh, Audrey Hepburn and Truman Capote. Either that, or uh, John Cassavetes and Sidney Poitier playing J D's. That's New York. Leonard Bernstein, West Side Story, New York. If, if you're particularly romantic, you see it as a, as kind of a Gershwin, uh, you know that that Cole Porter world, of the the New York that never was, and yet New York goes on all day. Long. I've never seen the interior of a Puerto Rican delicatessen at three o'clock in the morning in a movie. Never. That's the New York I know, but you just don't see that New York. You don't, you know. Uh, the, the, the New York of... Oh, uh, that you go on and on. And what I'm talking about is not New York. I'm talking about life. Have you ever seen a scene at 3 o'clock in the morning at Victory Circle in Indianapolis in a movie? No, you won't. Because you see guys that write movies and produce movies and direct movies and believe in movies have never really been involved in that sort of thing, and they're basically runners-awayers from it anyway. They don't want to be reminded of their background. You, know? you never, you never would get the idea that Johnny Carson ever lived in a, in a room without a without a John. You know, it had to be shared by four other guys down the hall at the YMCA. You know, late to Kansas. You, know, you never would ever mention that kind of thing. That's that's a, and Yet that's life. It's it's the way life is, and that's what life is about. I, I suspect that this is one of the reasons why millions of people have abdicated to their TV set and. Uh, and have you ever noticed? Uh, of course, there's been a lot of studies made on this that that the most popular part of television is not any single show. That 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 uh, that the most popular thing on television, year in and year out, is the commercial. That you'll get more action going, more talk going with people about the commercial, than you will any other single show or episode. Until eventually, television becomes this. This great droning hum of uh, things that flicker and buzz, and the people that yap, and guys that jump up and down, and guests that eternally plug their records, and it just goes on and on and on. And Flipper is eternally saving the scientist's daughter by learning how to read Sanskrit, and at the same time operating a Geiger counter while he's doing it. That goes on and on and on. And the one, the one, rela- the one thing that people relate to is the commercial. I have a theory why this is so. Not because they're, and this is the common attitude of the intellectual, uh, not because they're acquisitive, not because they live in a materialistic society, but for that little 58-second snippet, it's the first time they see anything that even remotely resembles their life on the screen. So here's a lady having trouble with the sink stopped up. Well, millions of ladies are going to watch that because their sink right now is belching up coffee grounds 50 feet away from where they're sitting, you know. Or you see a guy trying to sneak away from his family and go fishing in the new Dodge camper. You know, you've seen that one. And losing, by the way. This is why millions of guys are going to watch that. Or you see scenes of guys guzzling beer. This is what most people's lives consist of. Guzzling beer in one form or another. Fixing stopped sinks. I mean, you know, the great stuff. Uh, <laughs> you know, the stuff which life is made. And I think this is one of the reasons why people watch the commercials with such interest. A kid will watch commercials, you see, and he'll, he'll be involved. In why? Because they're about Wheaties. kid's life is based on, on uh, droodles, on uh, devil dogs. And the pinwheels and, uh, you know, uh, all those other whistles and daisies and ding dongs <laughs> And, yeah, all of a sudden, he's uh, there they're talking about something he knows about. Shows a guy pouring Wheaties and a bowl, you know, and yelling and hollering. Well, uh, this is his life, good or bad or indifferent. It's his life. And, you know, they found this to be true all over the world, friends. Don't think it's just America. You know that in France, for example... Uh, the, the commercial has always played a great part in the movie houses. Oh, yeah, they, pu- they play commercials in the movie houses in France. Uh, but a lot of you didn't know that, did you, friends? Well, they do. And I can just imagine the New Yorker flipping over this newest development of the slob world and yet at the same time digging anything that comes out of France, being very intellectual. And yet uh, uh, commercials are played in uh, the movie houses in France, and they award awards for it. Oh, yeah, they have festivals of commercials, a big thing. Yeah, people applaud them. I've I've sat, I sat in a movie house one time, and uh, this was in Amsterdam. And uh, after uh, the movie was over, on came all these commercials, and the people would sit there and applaud them. I mean, some of them were, you know, very clever, and they'd applaud the commercial. And there's a little character running around, there eating Dutch chocolate and quacking in Dutch, and everybody applauds, <laughs> and uh, I said, well, well it's because the, the, the little character is doing, I think, for the first time, they've seen something where the character is doing something they themselves want to do. Now, now, have you noticed that the Roto-Rooter commercials are very popular? Well, you never hear Cary Grant mention anything like that. You never. You, you, you just can't imagine uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, you know, he, he leaves the scene, he's talking to He's talking to uh, whoever it is, Anne Margaret. You know, he, he goes on forever. See, and uh, he's talking to Anne Margaret in the scene. He leaves, and he comes all of a sudden. He comes back to say, "Excuse me, uh, you know, the John. Uh, maybe you better call somebody." No, you just won't see that in a movie. You will see that in our lives, but you won't see it in a movie. You see, so so the, so that the uh, the minute that uh, that this kind of real stuff you know shows up on the screen, everybody looks up. You see, because they've all had experiences with it. I've never seen, very rarely do you ever see a movie where, uh, or a play where in the middle of some long, nattering harangue by, say, uh, Shirley McKnight, uh, you know, one of the deeper type actresses, or, or, or a long, a long breast-beating scene by Jerry Page, does the actor all of a sudden, Oh, will you shut up? I've got a headache. Why don't you save that for tomorrow? You got any Anacin around here or something? No, no, no. People don't have headaches. If they do have a headache, it shows that they're going to die of cancer of the brain or something in the in the TV or movies. But they never just have a headache, do they? Plain, ordinary headache because of the nattering that's going on. Never, you know? Well, yeah. So so when you watch television, here's a guy who says he's got a headache. You know, you know that he's going, ooh, ooh, ooh. His head's going, boing, 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 boing. And the voice comes on, yes, this man has headache number 48 which comes from listening to his boss yell for 45 minutes straight in the presentation of the big new sales operation for next year, going, 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 his head's going. What he needs, you know, is, is a boomer seltzer, number five. Well, <laughs> well, you see, wh- whatever, uh, whenever, uh, whenever anything happens in a play or a movie, it's, it's, it's always uh, fraught with meaning. Life is not fraught with meaning at all. But plays and movies are so. When a girl meets a guy and the music goes, da, 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 you know they're in love. That's the end of it, you know. And uh, half the time when guys meet girls, they just look at them. They say, "What the heck was her name?" Oh boy, she's skinny. Wow. But uh, yeah, in, in real life, you see it doesn't work the way it does in plays. Another thing too, you know. Have you noticed that the minute any hanky panky occurs in a TV film or a, or a movie or a play, instantly you know that. That the patter of little feet is not far behind <laughs> you know, oh yeah oh oh you got that's that 's another convention in movies, but in real life you know it doesn 't work like that but then then uh, let 's take soap commercials you know, soap commercials uh, how about that great race commercial? Have you ever seen that one where they got the two rolls and the and the guy is saying, and now it's the Great Tissue Race, and you don't even see that stuff in movies. Eh? It just not, doesn't exist, not at all, you know. You just don't see it. So, so the, the commercial world is really a reflection, more or less, and of course it's distorted a little bit, because after all they're trying to sell you something, but it's more or less a true reflection of the world that people live in. And so here's a scene of a guy, a uh, typical scene, a uh, typical commercial scene. You see a guy sitting, uh, I saw Charles Nelson Riley the other day <laughs> doing a commercial, and he's trying to talk to the fruit. And, uh, you know, old Charlie, I talked to Charlie about that. He thought that was a great commercial. And I said, well, it was, Charlie. You know, he's sitting there trying to talk to the fruit, and what he's trying to do is trying to get some flavor out of the jello. o Well, uh, now that's a problem we've all faced, the jello problem. Uh, And, and, uh, of course, commercials, uh, again, I say, uh, uh, can be primarily, I think, entertaining because they do deal with things that we all, from time to time, find ourselves involved with. Now, uh, let's take a typical television show now. Uh, Let's just take, for example, Flipper. That's a typical TV show now, isn't it? Flipper, or would you say Gentle Ben is more typical? All right. What well, would you say, Johnny Carson? Yeah, I think that would be probably more typical of the, of the eternal television show. Uh, I, I suspect one version of hell. You know, I got an idea for a, for a one-act play. You know, everybody does plays on, on what hell is like and what heaven is like. For me, a, a typical scene in hell would be to find yourself in an eternal audience watching an eternal Johnny Carson show. That goes on throughout all eternity. And they keep holding up signs that say applause. And the uh, new guests keep coming in through this sparkling curtain, each with his teeth shining, each looking a little like a, a vaguely dissipated Bobby Darren, uh, which is a kind of contradiction in terms. And, and uh, he, he, uh, coming in with his little record under his arm, about to plug his little shtick. And, and there you sit, eternally damned to sit there and wildly applaud inanity forever. There's a concept of hell for you, friend. And you know that a lot of people live that concept every night. Because I think we're far more quickly drawn to hell than we are heaven anyway. Uh, everybody wants to play the devil. Nobody wants to play the third angel from the right. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's just like every girl, no matter how... Deep her Sunday school background is. She always wants to play a lady who is no better than she should be, who wears a red dress and comes down the balcony there. You know the eternal uh, dancing girl. You know I, I was, I, was I, I must have been eighteen years old before I, it suddenly hit me that they sure did a hell of a lot of dancing out there in the West. <laughs> And it suddenly occurred to me that they weren't dancing girls at all, you know. And I wonder how many people out there still think they're dancing girls. You know, nice ladies sitting out there with blue hair. I think that Claire Trevor was always playing a dancing girl. You know, these guys had insatiable desire, these guys that were panning gold and and fighting the sheep rustlers. Had an insatiable desire to see ladies do uh, 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 Victor Herbert dance numbers. <laughs> no, nah, nah, nah. but, so, but that's all part of the commercial world. You know, you got you got to accept these conventions. And let's take the uh, now. Now, the, there's another side of the commercial world too. You see, on the one side, you see the real things that 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 uh, deal. You know, the people deal with, like uh, the sink is stopped up, and I'm road Roto, Roto. On comes the Roto-Rooter guy. I say, well, that's the real side. That's 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 the kind of reality that we all deal with. And then there's the dream side. Now, if you were to believe uh, the average play or the average film, that the only thing that people want out of this life is, well, the usual cliche called love. That every guy in the in, in every play I've ever seen, he's always searching for love. Whether it's uh, Dustin Hoffman or what is his name, Dustin Hoffman? He's low, uh, the newest big shtick. Whether it's Dustin Hoffman or Hoffman-Dustman or Aunt Bancroft, the big thing for 47 Reels they search is for love. Never once is there a scene in the second reel, see, where you've got this guy and his eyes are glazed, and you, you discover him at the soda fountain scene. He's drinking a Pepsi, Diet Pepsi, and he's sitting there with his jaw hanging slack, and his friend comes in and says, What's the matter, Charlie? I, said, oh, I don't know, man. Anyways, he said, well, come on, Charlie, what is it? And everybody assumes now that he has met the girl. Right, Skip? He has met the girl. And any minute now, Anne margarets going to come on. Instead, he says, I'll tell you what my trouble is Chris. Uh, God, I wish I could get my hands on a Pontiac GTO. Man, I'll tell you, what I want is the one with the four in the floor shift, you know, <laughs> with the stereo... Never, never, never. Uh, And yet, this is what the average walking around guy spends most of his time really thinking about. Now, let's take actors. You know, you you assume that a lot of people have an assumption that the actor is really the way the part is that he plays. A lot of people probably think that Dustin Hoffman goes around being sensitive and putting down phonies and, uh, you know, quivering. A lot of people think uh, probably that. Jack Lemmon goes around chasing Shirley MacLaine all the time, throughout all eternity, looking for the love of a good woman. No, I, I, I know hundreds of actors. They're friends of mine. I and mean, Here's what they think of. In, 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 the, in the ascending order, uh, well, let's say in the descending order of importance, one, how to get rid of that rotten agent they got and get a new one who's on the stick. That's what every actor i ever Two, how to get their teeth straightened. That's the second one. Three, if they could only find a guy who could produce the ultimate toupee. Four, how to get rid of this miserable, crummy wench they've been living with for the last four years without having her grab all their dough. All right. <laughs> now, that. that that's, but you never once, never once do you ever, do they ever even imply that, 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 that these people live in a world as real as that. No, oh, no. Oh, no, not at all. And uh, till finally, you know, you get to know, like one of my buddies at, a real famous actor and by the way he plays nothing but romantic dashing fantastic roles and this very famous guy and um, one day I meet him see on the street he's he's incognito he's in Mufti see he's not he's not playing the dashing guy he's playing the Brooklyn Schlump which is what he really is see so uh, yeah so I said hey how are you George he says oh man oh, oh my boy what's the matter George he said oh well so the next thing you know, we're sitting in the H&H, this famous, fantastic movie star, which if uh, everybody else in the H&H knew who it was, they would, you know, immediately there would be riots and they'd turn over the hot plates and knock the dishes over and all that, you know, getting to see him. So we're sitting over in the corner there and, and we, we get the coffee in the H&H. And he's looking out. See, so he's got these, these uh, he's looking out at the street with with a look of, uh, of total desolation. I says, what's up, George? Now, if this was a movie, you see, he would talk about Elizabeth Ashley. That would be what the movie would be. Or he has discovered that the world is a false place and the charade that we are all living is phony and that he and his friend are the only two people who understand what a phony world the adult world is. You know, you know you know what all the movie's about. So I said, what's up, Georgie? Ooh, jeez. Someday he says, I'm going to kill that damn cleaner. I said, what's up, Georgie? Oh, look at this. And he takes his arm up, and the cleaner had put seventeen great big holes in the in, under the arm of his overcoat. <laughs> I said, I said, George, what? He said, Oh, he said, Oh, man. And for, for forty five minutes, he sat and yelled and hollered about the cleaner that had put acid under the arms of his coat. Yeah, it's a lousy forty-five-dollar coat that he once got at this place picking off the gas pipe racks in Jersey. And that was that was what really bucked him. And sure enough, twenty minutes later, I'm walking down the street, and there's a big marquee, you know, and it's got his name on it, you know, George Trueheart, in Hearts of Flame, a searing drama of a young man's search for his true identity. And you know. I walked past, and I saw all those ladies lining up to see him. And then I, I thought of him going back. He's finally getting up his courage. See, by the way, he's, he is so lacking in courage. And I said to him, I said, George, why didn't you hit the guy in the mouth? <sighs> if I can only do that. So some guys can holler at waiters. I can't. He's got so little courage, he couldn't even say to the guy in the cleaning place that they ought to fix his coat. All he did was skulk out and sit in the horn and heart out and cry. But in the movie, you ought to see him. Oh, in the second reel, you should see him. He takes on 17 platoons of SS Luftwaffen troops. As they come in. you know, oh, he takes them on one by one, by hand, you know, tears them apart. And then marries the girl, you know, the whole thing. So I, know, you know. So I, I suspect... <laughs> I suspect that one of the reasons why people are slowly drifting away from the the world of the novel, they're drifting away from a lot of the things that you see on television and a lot of the, you know, the movie world is still in trouble, hardly anybody, is because they're beginning to slowly, beginning to slowly hunger for one scene in one movie, one place, where one guy looks at one girl and says, uh, oh, excuse me, in the middle of this big heart-rending season, oh, excuse me, i got to go to the John, I'll be right back. Now, don't forget what you were talking about, I'll be right back. And he gets up and goes. And in the meantime, she forgets what she's talking about, which was to, you know, talk about the way her heart bleeds for the life and the true existence and the time and the beat and the tempo. And so, I don't know. I, I don't know whether, whether TV commercials are good or bad. I don't think they're any worse than most plays we see, which also sell a kind of a strange, false uh, world of dream and illusion. The world where good guys and bad guys are so easily defined. The world like Dr. Strangelove, where you know who the bad guys are. They're the other guys. You're the good one. And everything is so neatly divided. What's What, what is more, I mean, that's as obscene, really, as selling a, car with a balsa transmission you know at least you can always go out and get another one but when you buy a philosophy I don't know it can cause a little more trouble and so somehow the sight of that lady plumber showing up now, now uh, I imagine uh, you notice that one where, where the where the where the uh, L goes by and the the lady plumber and the other lady are yelling at each other, trying to talk over the sound of the... You never see that in a Cary Grant movie unless it's a big shtick. You know. I mean, you know? This lady just lived in a lousy apartment. you went right by and shook the aphids right off the ferns. Six of one, half a dozen the other. I like that guy that tiptoes around in his apartment and says, Shh, you have to be very careful in this apartment because if you talk up, you know people next door, and then you hear, oh, sh- sh- excuse me. <laughs> Nobody in the middle of a big party that Peter Sellers is in starts pounding on the ceiling up ahead. Like, shut up, you guys down there! I don't care if Shirley McLean is there! I gotta sleep! No, no, that's the life that we live, friends. That's the life that we live. And I don't know whether we like it or not, it's nice to tell. Just hang loose.